0: Did You Read with Tim
1: Montgomery Welcome to the latest edition of Times Opinions Weekly Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times' Opinion Pages and I'm joined this week by three columnists Alice Thompson, Jenny Russell and Rachel Sylvester.
2: Boris said we should all be on our knees thanking the rich for propping up our ailing finances, paying for our hospitals and schools, but I disagree. They may buy our football clubs, but they give less in charity than any other European country. They employ few people apart from domestic servants. Wrong, Boris. It's the professionals who keep this country going. Too many graduates are chasing too few jobs. Although the number of graduate
3: vacancies this year is up by almost 5%, graduate starting salaries haven't risen since 2009. We've urged a generation of teenagers to take on huge debts on the promise of a better future, but now they're overqualified and underemployed. Is this risky, one-sided bargain sustainable? Ed Miliband's
4: relationship with Ed Balls is under the spotlight, with the leak of an email from the Labour leader's office describing the Shadow Chancellor as a nightmare. What is more interesting, though, is that there's a new generation in the Shadow Cabinet, creating a distinctive political identity and balancing the power of the two men at the top.
1: So three topics for us today, and we're going to start with your topic, uh, Alice Thompson, which is the subject of your column in Wednesday's Times, but is also, I think, a response to something that Boris Johnson wrote in the Daily Telegraph. Now, you seem to be very uh, negative about what the super rich are contributing to society. But let me just read something briefly that Boris wrote in his Telegraph piece. He said, the top 1% of earners now pay 29.8% of all income tax and national insurance. And that the top 0.1%, about 29,000 people pay an amazing 14% of all taxes. Aren't these people making enormous contribution to the funds that pay for our health service, our welfare system, our pensions?
2: Well, some of them are. But if you actually look at the list of the super rich in the Sunday Times, most of them are actually non-DONs. I think nine out of ten in the top ten are. And they aren't really paying very much tax. They also don't employ many people, a lot of them. And they're not like the sort of Victorian super-rich where they were philanthropists, where they looked after whole villages, where they tried to make a difference. These people very much live in islands of their own there. They may be living in London, but actually what they like about London is the private schools and they use private hospitals. They don't really get involved. And actually they may... Use the roads, but not paying for the roads, so they're not really involved. There are a top one percent, but many of those are professionals. And actually, to be in the top one percent, you only have to have 120,000, which sounds a huge amount, but actually, compared to the Metals or the you know the Abramoviches, that that isn't that much, and they're the ones that aren't really paying enough.
1: And you make the comparison to, with the charitable giving of the people in Britain, saying it's a lot less than America, which I don't think many people will be surprised at. But you also say it's a lot less than a lot of people in Europe. Pay in and Europe, they've had,
2: giving. Um, particularly in Germany, they've had a whole movement with the richers saying that they need to pay more and they need to help the Germans to get out of the recession. They were very proactive. And there's much more of a culture of being involved, partly because they don't have private schools in the same way, that people are much more... Um, meritocratic there, I think. Whereas here, we seem to be much more relaxed about behaving in an extremely wealthy way and sort of flaunting your
1: money more. And what's your response, Alice? Are you just at this stage raising the problem? Or uh, do you want new taxes on non-doms, new taxes on property? Or are you just wanting this super-rich community to become more ethical, more charitable? I think
2: we can persuade them to become more ethical and charitable. But also, the Lib Dems have tried with the ancient texts, but the problem is it has a knock-on effect on other people as well. So it's very difficult just to ring-fence these people. The Non-Doms have one particularly bizarre anomaly, which is that they're allowed to her- inherit their non-Dom status, which I think is particularly extraordinary in this day and age, Mm. and if they're actually living in this country pretty much full-time, although you have to be male to do it, females still can't inherit.
3: What? Jenny Russell? (laughs) Well, I'm just so astounded by that. I I think I could campaign for gender equality. Let the non-dom females inherit. It could be a New Times campaign. (laughs) But more seriously, I completely agree with Alice on this point, and I think that um, two things occur to me. First, it's not just a case of trying to make these people pay things like mansion tax. At the moment, if you buy um, a property in London and you buy it through a company and you're a non-dom, then you don't pay any stamp duty at all. Whereas Londoners who are buying houses above half a million now are hit with 7%. Mm. So there's so many ways in which the super rich get away without paying any taxes anywhere. And I think that's an absolute international scandal. Except the so when they point, buy
1: their luxury goods in Harrods and Selfridges and...
3: Do you know, I really have never been convinced by the argument that that does us any good at all, except apart from employing a few shop assistants in Harrods. I don't actually see what the presence of the super-rich does for us other than bid up the price of property in London. So that ordinary Londoners, ordinary professionals, the kind of people Alice is talking about, all our generation, our children's generation, can't afford to live. in. The, Do they not employ a, they're a,
1: employ a lot of people directly, though, as, as well as indirectly? What, a, few, a
3: few nannies and gardeners.
1: And security men men and
3: butlers and private tutors. But the other point about these statistics, about tax, which Boris cites, they just reinforce the fact that Britain is such a stupendously, appallingly unequal society. The idea that you've got the top 0.1% paying 14% of the tax, well, therefore, they are earning a lot more than 14% and owning a lot more than 14% of the wealth. I think that's extraordinary in a democracy that we've allowed this situation to happen.
1: But, Rachel Sylvester, do we not want these people, however much we may think they earn too much money or don't give to charity, we'd rather they were here paying some taxes to the British Treasury than in Paris or... New York or wherever, paying taxes to the French or the American. Well, I think it depends
4: if they do pay taxes. I think there's an interesting question about what's in the, within the law and what's moral and ethical. And I think there's sometimes a sense that the really wealthy, super rich elite, the have yachts, if you like, rather than the <laughs> have nots, have have kind of floated away from the rest of society and are behaving as if they're above the rules. So whether they they don't pay taxes because they have various systems of avoiding it, they don't pay stamp duties. Jenny says. And it's this sense that they're, they're living in a different set of rules to the rest of us that I think is the problem. And sometimes I think it's not even with it, if it's within the law, there are ways in which you should actually go further than that. And, and there's a sort of gray area that people try and exploit loopholes. And I think that's wrong. There are sort of moral and ethical boundaries here as well.
1: We're going to have a test case of... Uh the politics of this in New York, because we've just had a left-wing mayor elected, uh, de Blasio, first time for a Democrat in about two decades. And his central proposal is to tax the wealthy much more in order to fund better housing for New well, York, low been paid, etc. Well, it the test
4: case in France where a lot of very wealthy people are leaving Well, that's France, true as well. Um, so that, that is the so danger, isn't
1: yeah. it? That this may well, backfire. I don't, I don't Jenny Russell.
3: Talking, sorry, I don't think anyone's talking about slapping 80% taxes, which um. is what Hollande was suggesting. Mm. We're talking about getting non-doms whose income may run into the millions, but who pay £30,000 a year in Britain for the privilege of being a non-dom and not but, but having Jenny, a Gordon, b- to Gordon them. But Jenny, Gordon
1: Brown talked about this six, seven years ago when he first became became Prime Minister and nothing's no, happened. happened. It, 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 it's nothing happening because it's just incredibly difficult. Aren't we just sort of talking, moaning, but there's no one really has a plan to deal with this problem.
3: I think it may be true that nobody has a plan, but that doesn't mean they couldn't come up with one. This is just about international tax regulations. It's not about climate change, which is an impossible thing to work out because no one quite knows what the effects are. This is just a matter of what are the systems? Of course, you'd have to get some kind of global international agreement, or you could just decide that Britain is a very attractive place to live for all the reasons that Alice has already set out, and particularly people like coming here for the culture and for the social circles and for the schools Mm. and for the political stability and that therefore you will impose much bigger charges on them and if they don't like it, they can leave. And I've yet to see the argument that tells me that we don't want, that we have to keep the super rich here at all costs. I have yet to see an economic argument for it.
1: Finally, um, Alice uh, Thompson, uh, the party that seems least um, energised by this issue is the Conservative Party, you've got Labour and the Liberal Democrats at least talking in terms of a mansion tax on large properties, that the proceeds from which they will use to potentially cut taxes on the low paid. Do the Conservative Party need to worry more about this? Um, or is it enough for them just to hope and uh, that the economy, economic recover, recovery will continue and voters, as long as they are personally getting a bit better off, won't worry whether the super rich are making their full contribution to society.
2: I think it's always very worried about the politics of envy and that if they get involved in the politics of envy, it can all go wrong and start unravelling. So they're nervous about hitting out at the very top level. Also, all the parties have this problem with donors when they're slightly worried about what they say. And how it's going to affect the money that they're given to their party, which is always difficult, I think. And actually, they have a disproportionate influence. So, I mean, I've always felt very strongly that actually, in the end, we should start paying political parties. Because I find this the way that these very rich people can get involved with parties and have so much influence.
1: Jenny Russell is. Desperate um, to come in at that point. Well, I'm
2: just saying the problem of very rich donors is really only a Tory problem. It's not one that uh, very much affects the Labour Party. Well, the Liberal, the Liberal Democrats Party. actually have exactly the same problems. We've just interviewed James Palumbo, who is one of their rich donors, and I'd say that he, with £100 million, probably...
3: Yes, well I,
2: I was distinguishing the Labour and Tory, but you're quite right that the Lib Dems have got, a, have got a problem too, but this question
3: about alienating the super-rich is really a, a coalition issue.
1: Well, if, we're, if anything, I think it would
4: be easier, for the, uh, easier and better for the Conservative Party to deal with this than either of the other two parties, because it would be the perfect way to prove they are no longer mm. the party of the rich. George Osborne has in the past talked about this issue of the nom-doms, but then in reality it always sort of fizzles away and I think if anything that would be the brave thing for Cameron to do, he could prove he's not a sort of posh boy who doesn't know the price of milk if he actually made it fair and, and a level playing field.
1: Well we have the autumn statement coming up George Osborne's opportunity to answer your uh, <laughs> call. Um, I don't, don't think many of us will hold our breath. Well, we must move on to our second topic, which is Jenny Russell's uh, topic. And a splash in the FT makes, uh, in Tuesday's FT, makes this extra relevant. Jenny. Yes.
3: Can, can we point out that we, we wanted to discuss this topic before it appeared in the Absolutely.
1: FT? I can confirm <laughs> that. But Jenny, you wrote a piece for The Times in the summer talking about how much debt graduates would be getting into under the new regime and asking whether it's worth many people going to university, given that they can't get good jobs afterwards. What is your advice to someone thinking of university potentially? Is it really uh, no longer going to pay in the way that it once did?
3: I think it entirely depends what your background is, what subject you're studying and what class of university you're going to go to. I think the big deception that's been practiced on lots of young people in this country who don't understand the way the class structure works and what rewards um, accrue to different degrees is that a lot of them believe that any degree from any university is going to be a passport to a job. That's the message that schools keep giving them. In fact, you've got to go to a Russell Group university and you've got to study a subject in which graduates who leave... Um, find high level jobs. If you go to Oxbridge to study almost anything you're probably going to be fine. If you go to the University of North London and study sociology then statistically you're going to end up in a non-graduate job with huge debts on very low earnings. But the really interesting thing about the reports today, I think, is that in the summer I was writing about the current generation of graduates who are going to emerge with between forty-five and £60,000 worth of debts. And I was arguing that for most of them, for a lot of them, that is not going to pay off. The interesting thing about today's statistics is that these are referring to the people who have already graduated over the past four years. They've had much lower levels of debt. And yet every single cohort for the past four years has earned less In the cohort before. And graduate salaries have now fallen um, three times as fast starting salaries as the general fall in wages in the population. And it's now, uh, the ONS says that 36% of recent graduates are employed in lower skilled jobs. And all the evidence shows that once you start off in a low paid job, It's very difficult for your lifetime earnings to recover. There's a study in California saying it takes 10 to 15 years for the average person to recover their wage level when they graduate into a recession. So it's not just a matter of it's tough for a couple of years. We're actually disadvantaging these people. Now, what it's going to mean for the next generation, God knows.
1: The answer to this, um, Rachel, Alice, is it to stop sending quite so many people or funding quite so many people to study sociology at North London University and to actually invest in the kind of technology colleges that Ken Baker is promoting, that we become serious as a country for the first time about vocational education? Or what is the answer?
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. plushcare.com slash weight loss I
2: think Thompson. vocational education is what's happened in Europe very strongly and actually we forgot about it for too long and I think we need to years. you talk to headmistresses and headmasters now that, that's what they're trying to promote now and actually it was always seen as a second class way of looking at things. And then John Major, to his credit, did want people to go to university because he felt that actually if they didn't, they were so looked down on and and so frowned on. And the way to have a meritocratic society was to get everyone to go to university. But actually looking at that now, maybe that was wrong. Maybe we did need more technical
1: Rachel Sylvester.
2: I think there's
4: another interesting thing about the sort of divide between the generations. So we've talked about class divides, north-south divide, but there's now increasingly this divide between older and younger people, which David Willits wrote about brilliantly in his book, The Pinch. And I think this is one of those things where the older generation has done incredibly well and the younger people are now increasingly disadvantaged, whether it's on housing, Mm -hmm. education. You know, you've got the pensioners, incredibly wealthy pensioners, including the super rich that Alice talked about, Talked about who getting their free television allowance, licences, free winter fuel allowances, Um, and I think as part of this sort of sense that there's going to be this sort of envy of the younger generation towards the older generation, which is something that the government could It's a separate Mm. issue, but it's something the government could deal with as well.
1: Jenny, there's a big question about the next cohort of graduates coming through whether they should be, um, whether they will be earning um, very much compared to their, their predecessors. But there is this particular issue of people who've graduated during this depression period, this recessionary period, isn't there? And if you're an employer, do you recruit from that pool of people who've been underemployed or unemployed? Or do you recruit from the new, fresh people coming through? How much is this five six year cohort of graduates actually going to be disadvantaged not just for now but potentially for many years to come
3: no that's that's exactly going to be the problem for them because employers always want the new shiny person who's coming out with a new degree not the person who has been forced to spend a couple of years serving in pret manger or filing in some Mm. accountancy firm because they can't find anything that suits their their graduate skills and um, they very rarely do recover all the evidence is that what happens to your career is determined very sharply by what you do in the first three or four years and whether you get marked out as a star, because um, we're all creatures of, of, of the herd, really. And if we think somebody's got a, a, a large tick by their name or that they, they've got some kind of star quality, we're much more likely to employ them. And so graduates who follow the advice given by the government to just get a job, any job, in fact, they may be disadvantaging themselves because employers will look at them and think, well, there was nothing particularly fantastic about you or somebody else would have given you a job before. Does
1: it there's one, Rachel, other, one other point
4: which is a slightly different point, but I think there's a danger in turning education simply into sort of job factory. So I think there is... All the points you're making, Jenny, I think are completely right. But I don't think going to university should just be preparation for a job. I think it's in itself is a fantastic thing. You know, I read English. That was preparation for absolutely nothing really but it, you, it, it was in itself sort of education of the mind and uh, you know it was it was a value in itself it wasn't just the kind of functional utilitarian well, alice
1: thompson thing. your column in last week's times was about the value of learning english literature which on the face of it may not be the most marketable of disciplines but actually your argument was a lot of people in science and maths are appreciating people who study Yes, and actually, when you look English. at the statistics, it's
2: the people who do best are the people who read most at 16. So it's very difficult to tell. My worry, from Jenny's point of view, is actually that that it is going to make this rich divide even bigger because yes. if you go to university and your parents can pay for your flat when you've finished and they're going to help you with your university degree, you're in so much better a situation than almost everyone else. It's got such a huge advantage. Whereas 30 years ago, when you, you, know, you weren't having to pay so much for education, when actually you could get onto the housing market quite easily, you could actually try and compete in the same way with people who had very rich parents. And I can't see how that's not going to get worse and worse unless we do something about it quite soon.
1: Jenny Russell, final word on this topic.
3: Well, I can... I completely agree with Rachel about the joy of studying an academic subject for its own sake. And I'm not being rude about sociologists. My mother is one and has been (laughs) an academic sociologist (laughs) all her life. And, and, you know, it's a brilliant way of understanding the world. But the trick that's been played on people is um, to tell them that any degree is worth it. Now, if you can afford to go and read sociology for three years and you know you're going to love it and you don't mind the fact that it's not going to deliver you into a job, that's one thing. If you think this is going to be a passport into a better life, when in fact it's just going to load you with tremendous debt and employers don't care one way or another, then that is um, an appalling situation to be in.
1: Fascinating subject. We will, of course, at some point have to discuss the fact that new ONS data reveal that children born in July and less than people born in any other month of the year and as as someone I <laughs> uh, me too oh, one Jim, of the great what's in- your salary? <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on we were uh, to our uh, in
3: case it's in the top 1% <laughs> <laughs> paying taxes <laughs>
1: Um, Rachel, you've uh, nominated um, uh, our third topic based on your column in Tuesday's newspaper, and there's weekend speculation that the relationship between the two heads at the top of the Labour Party is not as good as perhaps they would like us to believe that it is, but... Your point is a wider point, is that actually, although the relationship isn't perfect, um, it's not so dominant in the Labour Party as it once was.
4: Yes, I think what's fascinating is there is, for, for sort of 20 years or more, the Labour Party's basically been a duopoly. To start with, it was Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then more recently, Ed the Eds. And there are tensions between them, you know, whether it's over HS2, or more significantly, over the sort of future economy that they'd like to build, with Ed Miliband far more radical. About basically remaking capitalism, and Ed Balls more kind of small C conservative, traditional about not wanting to offend the city and business. Yeah. But what's interesting is that there's it's now one um, front bencher described it to me as it's more of a sort of multipolar world. It was this kind of policy of mutually assured destruction with these two superpowers who could fire shots at one another. But now there are these other more interesting people coming up through the ranks who are becoming, uh, creating their own identities in their own right. So people like Tristram Hunt, Chukramunna, Rachel Reeves, Mary Cray, who I'm told completely took on Ed Balls within her first week of being appointed Shadow Brave Transport woman. Secretary and one. <laughs> um, and they're, they're kind of developing their identity of their own. And it's not about factionalism or leadership challenges. It's just about people who've got their own voice and their own identity. And there are significant players now in their own right, and right uh, now, rather than some sort of future yeah. thing.
1: And is it clear what they believe uh, in old-fashioned terminology of Blairite, right, old Labour? Are they Moving the Labour Party in a particular direction, or are they are they, un, are they well, unformed all, by,
4: still? D- by definition, each is different. So, but I think if you look at, say, Tristram Hunt, he's creating a much more sort of less tribal Labour version of the education policy. So he's inventing, he's creating his own version of free schools, which he calls parent-led academies. And it's more aspirational than education policy has been in the past. Chuka Munna has got some interesting ideas on, on a sort of about social mobility. Mm. He's a sort of black lawyer who's got a very poor South London constituency. Uh, Rachel Reeves has got a, um, she says she wants to be tougher on welfare than the Tories. she she's, she's reshaping, policy on benefits. They have got their own ideas. It's not just about personality, actually. Each one has got some quite significant Mm. policies that they're developing.
1: Jenny Russell, dialing back a bit to the Ed Balls, Ed Miliband tension. Mm. Um, We know, we think we know they've disagreed on HS2, disagreed on Taxation of the city disagreed on the European referendum. We've got to start taking Labour more seriously, haven't we? Because they're moving ahead <laughs> <Speak> in the. <laughs> yourself,
3: Tim. Some of us have been taking them seriously for <laughs> some time.
1: They're moving ahead in opinion polls. Of all the bookmakers say, you know, the Labour are favourite to win the next election. If that's true, how worried should we be about this tension between? the leader of the Labour Party and the, the shadow chancellor?
3: Well, I think to some degree you have to accept that if you're going to have clever people at the top, then they are usually going to fight. I think the fascinating thing about Cameron and Osborne is, is how, how little they've, they've done that. Mm. But um, I think the more serious problem is that the Labour Party... It's divided between those people um, at the top ranks who think that Ed Balls is one of the most brilliant political minds that ever lived, both good at both tactics and economics, and those people who fear that um, the public has doesn't have that reaction to Ed Balls at all, and that, in fact, he looks largely like... Um, the man with a lisp who determinedly helped Gordon Brown spend more money than the country had in the years before Labour lost power and who has never acknowledged any responsibility for his part in the financial crash, which was largely to do with the failure of the banks, an international problem, but also to his regulation, which was pro- Labour's responsibility. But also the problem in Britain was do, worse,
1: the recession was longer, the deficit was bigger which, which than other
3: countries. Which is probably the Tories' fault. Let's, uh, let's, let's chuck that in too, shall we? <laughs> but, but the point is that a lot of people think that Ed Balls is um, an Achilles heel and people in the shadow cabinet worry about that and they worry that the public doesn't find him acceptable and that as long as Labour hasn't fessed up to its Part in what went wrong, that um, the country isn't actually going to trust it in the future economically.
1: Alice Thompson, the Conservatives have long looked at the personal approval ratings of Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, and they've seen people that the public don't warm to. Do you think they put too much stock in that? Do you think they are beginning to wonder whether the Labour leadership team is more formidable, more impressive than they gave them credit for?
2: I think they do. I think originally they thought Edmund Obama was their secret weapon, that actually he was going to win them their election and that they wouldn't have to do as much about it. But now because of UKIP and because of so many other influences that have come into play, they have got to look much more severely at Ed Miliband, and I think he was very clever at his conference to, to start talking about the cost of living mm. and to understand that that was going to be a major issue and to stop talking about the economy, actually, I think did unnerve them and unsettle them. And I think the whole idea of energy policy and everything they've had to do since the Tories have really been slightly on the back foot. And I think that's been quite impressive. And I think for that alone, actually, Ed Miliband is more nerve wracking than he
1: Ben was Brogan ended um, his column in The Telegraph with sort of, which was basically about Puzzled about why Labour was doing so well. And he ended by saying, actually, isn't the fundamental problem not the strength of the Labour Party, but the weakness of the Conservative Party, the fact that the Conservative Party hasn't somehow been able to defeat opponents that normally it should be able to defeat, Rachel Sylvester.
4: Well, the, the, the Conservative Party still hasn't dealt with this problem that they're seen as the party of the rich. And takes us back to where we began. Takes us back to where <laughs> we began. And, and, and Ed Miliband has very cleverly, whether by, by accident or design, probably a bit of both, tapped into that and exploited it. And with this promise of an energy price freeze, et cetera, and, and shifting the debate onto the cost of living rather than the sort of deficit and all of that, he's managed to expose the Tories' Achilles heel. Um, so, so therefore, it's not about people necessarily jumping into Ed Miliband's arms. It's more about they're unsure still about the Conservative Party. So if
1: the Conservative Party gets it right over the next 18 months. Destiny is still in David Cameron's hands. Final brief word, Jenny Russell.
3: Well, I think that's a possibility because I think the interesting thing about the polls at the moment is that people are, I think, thrilled that a political party has recognised how difficult it is to live on the... Um, sinking incomes, which people thrilled? are experiencing. At the no, they're <laughs> thrilled to realize that a political party is responding mm. to that. No, they're not thrilled by the situation at no, all. No, no, but I'm, but I'm, I'm not sure that
1: they're thrilled by any political party. They may be comforted. Well, I think or, I'm picking There's been a, a of lot, lot of positive
3: response to, to, to the fact that actually politicians are finally talking about the issues that people are worrying about every day. But I think that um, where the danger comes is that if the economy does start to pick up so that people start seeing hope that they will get wage rises or better jobs or longer hours or whatever they want, then I think it's human nature to wish for the optimistic future. And if the Tories are saying things are going to be glorious under us, then people will want to feel that the sacrifices they've made in the past few years were worthwhile and they might be very tempted to go for what they already know.
1: So thank you, Jenny Russell rachel sylvester alice thompson for uh, joining me today all of the articles that we've been discussing are available to Times subscribers at thetimes.co.uk/commentcentral, slash comment central and do subscribe via itunes so that you get this downloaded to your ipad or iphone or wherever every single week thanks to dave mcguire for producing this podcast and i hope i'll see you again next week